0: From the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman.
1: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. And we're joined by a special guest who has a bit of a long Penn State pedigree. I'll get to her in a second. In today's topic, we're doing a deep dive into a topic that is the intersection of business ethics, the environment and social responsibility. You hear the term out there often these days, ESG or environmental, social and governance. And it's really important in supply chain, especially in today's globalized world where the supply chains are the lifeblood of our business operations and connecting you know products and services to customers and consumers worldwide. But the real question we're asking today is, How can businesses ensure that their supply chains not only deliver shareholder value, but can also uphold their ethical environmental responsibilities? And so we're joined today by, I would consider a friend and a former colleague, maybe a colleague again in the future, Sophia Schuster. Sophia holds both an MBA and a master's degree in supply chain management from the Penn State Smule College of Business. She has a background in the retail and education sector and her education so far is propelled by a desire to understand the impact of the way we communicate, combined with her personal interest in sustainability topics. So, uh, we're pleased to have her with us here today. Sophia, welcome to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Steve. I really appreciate it.
1: So, let's start with uh, you. Can you share a bit about your personal background, how ESG became part of your research interest? And uh, then we'll talk a little bit about your own research and and what you you know today.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, like you said, my background is really in the retail and education sector. And something that really stuck with me when I was working in retail, I had a manager who really stressed that the way that we communicate with our customers impacts their opinion of us and how they approach us every day. And I think that that was something that really resonated with me. And as I looked into some of the ESG literature, just the sustainability literature that exists within the business world, a lot of the emphasis is focused on what sustainability means to consumers and how businesses are kind of conveying their own ethics to those consumers and how that kind of propels purchasing decisions and so on and so forth and even investing decisions and so that's kind of what got me really interested in esg because esg environmental social governance standards or i think we'll get into that a bit later but the way that that kind of harmonizes with corporate social responsibility is a really key component for modern business ethics. And so that's how I kind of got into that.
1: So let's let's talk about the landscape a bit, right? So you've mentioned the three key aspects, right, of environmental social governance. But when we think about compliance in the supply chain, can you explain the distinction between what is maybe mandatory that firms have to do and what is voluntary, and maybe some examples of how businesses think about those things differently.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure. So, when we talk about compliance, that's really, I mean, compliance means that there's some kind of repercussions to failure. And so compliance is really mandatory, that's anything coming from government bodies, regulations, this. That would be mandatory. Like I said, wherein failure to comply has some kind of defined consequence that's set forth by the agency or group that's defining it. An example that I'm kind of familiar with is a more recent piece of legislation out of California called AB 1200. AB 1200 is it, in an effort to moderate the chemicals that are being used on cookware has been part of the California legislature, it was just implemented in 2020. And it's basically asking large companies to show what chemicals are being used on their cookware. Uh, And so failure to comply, failure to report their suppliers and what is going into their products has some kind of consequence. We might also see, um, you know, disclosure, standards that are enforced by organizations like the SEC, which I want to go into a bit later when we talk about the silver lining, but those are the types of mandatory compliance. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work that I did when it came to the research was looking at voluntary reporting. Anything that the company is putting out, maybe it's an ESG report, annual or semi-annual you might also have uh, press releases where a company is announcing something that it's being that's being done that they're probably proud of, so you're assuming it's going to be very positive. Same thing with those ESG reports. And then what we also see has been the emergence of these ESG ratings indices, where uh, companies will use these ratings to kind of bolster themselves among their peers, and they get a grade for their ESG efforts. Uh, so that's kind of where we see the difference between what is mandatory and what is voluntary. I think one of the biggest differences when we talk about this is what's mandatory is it's it, there's no bias to it. It's what you disclose. It's what you're required to disclose. Whereas voluntary, it's going to be positive. You're not really going to be all that, I mean, businesses aren't going to be all that interested in highlighting what they're doing wrong or if they are doing something wrong, they'll be able to spin it in a way that says we're going to address it in such and such a fashion.
1: So I I guess a way a take on that would be if it's it's mandatory, Mm -hmm. it's a binary choice. You either do it or you don't. If you don't do it, there's repercussions. And if you do do it, you better do it right or there's repercussions, right? So in both cases. Yeah. Now on the voluntary side and I got the impression both from your research as well as from other conversations that we have that the voluntary portion really dominates today, right? There's way more voluntary reporting, notification and information than there is mandatory. Is that a true statement?
2: Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. And that's largely driven by consumer or I guess external stakeholder expectations and when I say external stakeholders, I really want to focus on the consumer and the investor, not necessarily the government bodies, because that, again, gets into the mandatory side of things. But I mean, for consumers, there have been multiple studies published indicating that consumers are willing to spend more money on sustainably made products, green products, for whatever that means. And again, that's a whole other can of worms, but uh, same thing for investors. and for investors, it's a particularly interesting note because not only are they interested in maybe making investments that are with organizations that are good or beneficial to the environment or that they can consider are doing the right thing by ESG standards, um, but that they're also low risk. Uh, So by addressing some of these ESG issues that modern firms are facing, they might be at a lower risk level than a firm that's not. And so those, those external stakeholders have a huge influence on the way that businesses do business today.
1: So before we get into the minutia or as you refer to it as opening some cans of worms, so I'm guessing there's going to be a few worms squirming around here in a minute or two, what is so complicated about evaluating a supply chain or a, or an industry and, and their supply chains? when it comes to these ESG, and I'm putting air quotes around its standards, what makes it so complicated?
2: Well, just the fact that supply chain isn't really an accurate way to look at it anymore. I mean, it's really supply network. And modern supply networks are not characterized by a single multinational corporation with their major first tier suppliers, and that's pretty much it. Now you have major mncs with their first tier suppliers who then subcontract out to other lower tier suppliers and those lower tier suppliers are not held to any if many if any standards Um, and that's really where we run into issues in terms of setting standards within an organization and within an industry because you you know essentially if there's no way to moderate what's going on at those lower levels. It's really hard for MNCs to really take any kind of responsibility or understand what's going on in their own supply networks. So that's really what makes it incredibly difficult.
0: So, uh, you, you know, you talked about supply networks being, you know, so pervasive. Have you seen any companies or any organizations or industries associations that have been successful at kind of mapping and measuring that entire network?
2: Yes, definitely. I I hate to be kind of um, get up on the, the Patagonia soapbox, but they actually done a fantastic job at tracing their entire supply chain and being very transparent about it. That's kind of in that same or on that track, I suppose. There is a very common misconception that by a multinational corporation having this good Behavior, this good ESG behavior, or having something that's very well laid out within the corporate network, that, that is automatically going to, it's like the trickle down effect, that it's going to go down to your first tier suppliers who are going to integrate it with their second and third tier suppliers. There's been a lot of evidence to show that that's not necessarily true. There was a great paper by Dr. Joy and Dr. Vienna, both who were associated with Penn State in 2020 where they showed that that was not true and they kind of highlighted these nine multinational corporations or mncs that have been kind of leaders in their particular industry and still there were a lot of inconsistencies along the supply network and so just that alone i think kind of tackles a an assumption that a lot of mncs rest on uh, for for esg What uh, Vienna and Joya actually laid out then was that there's kind of this hope that you can integrate a lot of different types of practices, what they classify as uh, direct, indirect, collective, and global. So a direct practice might be anything that the buyer firm is sort of putting into place specifically with their supplier. Um, Those might be audits. And those audits might be done with that particular MNC, or it could also be done in a collaborative way, which is then a collective mechanism. So the lines are very blurred. And when I say collaborative, I mean um, the MNC might be working with other organizations within their same industry who will sort of monitor those same suppliers that they are working with together, that they share. And any punishment that comes from the audit can either come from one MNC or from the collective whole. So it sort of depends on how they might have that structured. Um, You also have indirect, like I said, where that's kind of that is sort of integrates the whole trickle down effect idea where you would have expectations in place for your first tier suppliers and how they are doing business with their their suppliers, their lower tier subcontracted suppliers. We also have kind of these global opportunities where we're working with organizations like the sustainability consortia or the WWF, where they have different mechanisms to help organizations trace their supply chain and understand what the risks are that are inherent in those supply chains. So I know that's a very long winded answer, but those are kind of some of the key techniques. All of that comes back to the imperative nature of having a transparent and traceable supply chain, because the more information that you have, the more knowledge that you have and you know how to address those issues. And we've seen time and time again in history where not having that understanding has come back to bite companies many times.
1: Now, Sophia, I have uh, firsthand knowledge because full disclosure here, Sophia and I worked together for better part of six months. I was one of her paper advisors for her master's paper in this area. So I got to read some really cool research in this space You talked earlier about rating. You just got finished talking about what companies should do and other research associated with how they should work toward both mandatory and voluntary compliance. But then there's these ratings out there, right? That are offered by agencies that I think have the intent of trying to create a level playing field. But when you looked into these ratings, you saw there was kind of a difference between what the ratings agencies were doing and maybe what best practice was. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think there are two important things to know about these ratings agencies. First of all, there are 600, more than 600 uh, ratings indices that exist in today's business world. And essentially, they all suggest uh, that they are measuring the same thing. And so you would think that because of that, if they're measuring the same thing, ultimately they're going to be getting similar results. Another uh, key thing to note then is that except for a select few, FTSE Russell and I believe it's Sustainalytics are two of the indices that have access to uh, information provided by the MNC. Otherwise, a lot of these ratings indices are dependent on publicly available data. And so that in itself is going to be very limited, again, based on something that a company might want you to see. That's going to be coming from those ESG reports and those, those news reports as well.
1: Yeah, and we've already established that most of that is voluntary. Right, right? exactly. Most of, most of it is not mandatory or compliance related. Exactly. Okay.
2: Uh, and so what we're seeing then is that there's this disconnect between what we just said, those direct indirect collective and global efforts that are really imperative in, um, procurement and just in supply networks in general, that make a difference in, uh, improving the transparency and traceability of a supply network, those things are not necessarily being measured though, in a lot of those ratings indices. And why is that? Well, a lot of them are focused on environmental, social, and governance. But what is easily measured is the social and governance aspects, the diversity of a board, the uh, equal pay ratio, any kind of association with risk. For example, when you talk about coffee beans, uh, a Starbucks might have some more social risk factors because of the type of workers that they employ uh, and maybe not giving a fair wage to those workers. So Those types of things are easily measurable. Those generally speaking across all ratings indices are considered the key or mandatory things that are being measured. The optional things that are being measured is the environmental pillar. And that is particularly problematic when you think about what these ESG ratings are telling consumers and telling investors, or at least what their assumptions are about what they mean. Uh, And so I think a huge issue is that disconnect because if what gets measured gets done, you know, old adage in the business world, if what gets measured gets done, we are not rewarding firms in those ratings agencies or ratings indices to do what is necessary on the environmental side
0: so i guess i struggle a little bit because you know i, I think about the measurement of things like other rules that, that talk about child labor that's being measured you know other things about using Uyghur labor in in uh, in, in they're being measured right now there's laws being passed in in those areas here, specifically in the U.S., I mean, I see those, the ability to measure the results and compliance somewhat similar. Am I wrong?
2: Uh, No, you're not wrong, but that is, I mean, the uh, Uyghur labor, that is mandatory. And so what we're really focusing on right now is what is voluntary, what companies are actively, openly reporting that they are doing. And so when you see uh, the publicly of, of course compliance with regulations is going to factor into or those mandatory regulations is going to factor into a score uh, for from the ratings index yeah
0: So then what about mandatory compliance and when does that come into play
2: So mandatory compliance I mean it comes into play always I guess but you know we have to think about that there are certain When you talk about mandatory compliance, there are going to be various levels of that, Uh, you might have local or state level regulations that, uh, depending on what state it comes from is going to have more teeth. So let's actually return to that AB 1200 example that I mentioned before. You know, like I said, that regulation was put into place for identifying the different toxins or chemicals that are being used in cookware and there has actually been a lot of talk within restaurant supply company circles that suggest that maybe they just won't do business in california and so there are ways to get around some of these regulations it's actually i mean especially when you talk about state and local regulations that you know you can not deal with a local area that's really not a big issue when you talk about a state like California, I believe it's $138.5 billion industry, the restaurant industry is $138.5 billion industry. It accounts for maybe, uh, I want to say 10% of the employment in the state. That's a huge impact. And so even the fact that these com- these companies, these organizations are talking about, we'll just forget California that mean that suggests to me that they're not necessarily willing to pay the price of compliance in that state and that's big now think about it if it wasn't california which obviously commands a huge amount of power in the american legislature i mean if you talked if if you said the same le- if you said the same legislation was going to come out of south dakota any any smaller state with a lower population it's pretty easy to understand why companies would be able to just discard that regular, that compliance, that mandatory regulation right then and there. Okay. So that's great. California obviously passed something that has quite a bit of teeth, but they're able to be more specific. The further out you go, the more power that you get behind legislation, they might have to, in an effort to get more people from both sides of the aisle on board, you have to kind of make concessions on what is and is not acceptable. And so even though you have maybe regulations like the weaker uh, forced labor prevention, there might have been more concessions made in that regulation. I'm not, I, I can't speak to it very directly aside from just general knowledge of it but there might've been more opportunities to go deeper at a state level than is possible at a federal level.
1: The way I like to think about this, Sophia, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, and you sort of established this earlier, we've got two buckets. We've got this compliance mandatory part Mm -hmm. that firms sort of have an inherent incentive either to, as you've already said, I'm not gonna play in that space, so they can self-select out. Or if I am gonna play in that space, I'm pretty much obligated to comply. Otherwise, I'm going to get a big old black eye, one way or the other.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So that part is kind of straightforward. But then you also said there are hundreds, I think you said 600 ratings agencies.
2: More than 600. More than
1: 600 who are publishing data about firms that tell a story about how this firm is doing for environmental social governance. Mm -hmm. but that is not a compliance issue it's not a regulatory issue it's not mandated by any as far as i'm aware industry standards maybe there are sort of industry i don't know social norms that they follow how do i segue from the very structured mandatory compliance reporting stuff over into this world of 600 plus ratings. How do I even make any sense of that stuff to say whether it's uh, I don't want to say truthful because that would probably be a misnomer, but whether it's usable, right? Whether I can interpret anything from it.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I would like to say that there's an easy answer to that, especially because, like I said before, you have these ratings indices that are basically they say that they are measuring the ESG performance of firms. And that in and of itself suggests, I think to the, to me and to the average consumer, that that score is indicative of whether they are doing the right thing. And if that's the case, and if all of these organizations, these indices are getting data from publicly available sources. So they all have access to the same information you would think that in fact, their scores are going to be really similar, and that's not true. In fact, there was a really good paper in 2022, Larker, Pomorski, Tyan, and Watts. They found very low correlations across ESG ratings, as well as the different individual ESG components. So not only was there low correlation across the ratings, but what they classified as environmental was different. What they classified as social was different and same for governance. And so what could be causing that? Uh, I think the natural inclination is to think it's the weights, it's the way that they are weighting their scores and therefore that's going to skew the way that the data, and that's gonna skew the way that the score kind of comes out in the end. But in another study, They basically found that the measures and the measurements being employed accounted for about 56% of the divergence, and so if they're trying to measure the same thing and they have the same information, then you would think that the measurements would be the same, and they're not. And so if you have these different indices that are saying that they're measuring the same thing, but the way that they're measuring it is different, but an investor and a consumer doesn't know that it tells of it gives you kind of this very difficult, it, you can't really interpret them the same and it's, it gets messy. And I don't really know that there's necessarily a, a great solution to it at this current juncture.
0: It leaves open. It leaves open for a lot of debate. That's for sure.
2: Tons of debate, absolutely. Because, and again, I, you can take this in so many different ways. But you know, consumers and investors, especially, if you think about the modern consumer, they have so many choices that they're facing every single day. And if they want to be able to feel confident in that they're making, and they're looking to these ratings, and they assume that the rating is consistent across all circles, but it's not, I mean, how can, an, how can a consumer or an investor make an informed decision? And that's, I think that's the issue that I have, especially as a former retail employee who was told to always be honest. And I don't know that firms are necessarily trying to be dishonest, but the fact that there's no consistency makes it very difficult to make a choice.
0: Sophia, as a consultant, I typically end up in debates with clients about how they measure forecast accuracy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's when you're asking people a lot of self-reporting and and, and in these situations, you end up with a lot of debate.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What's the path forward? Like where do you think we go? You think these 600 organizations, some of them just die off and they merge and
2: Well, so actually, uh, there was a recent MSCI, which is the biggest rating, I mean, it's probably the most well-known ratings index that's out there. They came to be as a result of a merger. And so I wouldn't be surprised if some of these organizations do start to move together because they're just competing against one another. But I think you bring up a good point. It's like a lot of uncertainty and doom and gloom. That I'm talking about here, but there's actually been some really interesting movement forward just in the last couple of years. So one example in 2023, I think it was March 2023, early 2023, I know that, the SEC announced new ESG disclosure requirements that are supposed to strengthen and standardize climate-related disclosure. And Goldman Sachs was actually the asset management group was fined for non compliance because they indicated that the way that the data, the research was done, left those investors, oh, that they were, the investors were basically uh, exposed to greenwashing and that uh, they didn't have all the necessary information to make that informed decision. So, right there, you have a standardized way of disclosure for climate related issues uh, that is expected in financial reports. So that's kind of a, we're talking, we're sort of talking about voluntary reporting. This is a a mandatory report, of course. But I think that a lot of the ways that um, mandatory reporting exists is going to inform the voluntary reporting and may, I hope, inform the way that ESG ratings indices approach their methods. Because if we're punishing companies for being non-compliant in disclosure, we would hope that those ratings indices become a little bit more consistent in the way that they're reporting or getting their information.
1: One quick, uh, I'll call, say final technical question for you on your opinion on this. So if I, and our audience is going to be primarily um, supply chain or just business professionals in general, and they're listening to everything that you just said, and they're trying to think about their own decision-making process going forward. So what would be your advice to a business professional who wants to do the right thing, knows that they're are lots of choices out there as far as as ratings agencies and differences in what they're going to get. What can they do to to try to do the right thing, not just for their firm, but also uh, in utilizing these ratings agencies to tell the right story about what they're actually doing?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, especially because um, there was a study from KPMG that said that 75% of businesses companies globally are not necessarily ready for these disclosure requirements and so that's a huge indicator there that esg data makes a lot of organizations nervous and i think rightfully so because as we've discussed it is a widely saturated and complex wild west out there i think if i had to make any recommendations i would really focus on from the procurement perspective because when you know procurement has you know it interfaces at every level of the business it's the deal maker the designer the you know everything sourcing i think that's one of the biggest areas that organizations can make an impact and like I said, that can come in a variety of different ways. But when you work with organizations like the Sustainability consortia, which has its own uh, transparency traceability mechanism, it's called thesis, where it helps organizations kind of map their supply chain and identify areas of risk. I think that's a huge first step. Having that understanding of what exactly is going on, not only with your first tier suppliers, but who they're doing business with is vital for doing the right thing and for protecting yourself from risk. And I think that a lot of that would then fall into improvement opportunities within the sustainability ratings indices because avoiding risk, addressing any opportunity for risk is ultimately going to improve the social, it probably should improve the social and likely the environmental scores, but definitely the social, because like we said, those are mandatory for a lot of those ESG ratings indices. And so that's going to give them a lift as well. And I, you know, I guess I'm a little bit biased, have more people on your team who are well-versed in ESG metrics and what you can do from a publicity, but also from a back-end standpoint is going to be really crucial.
1: So It sounds like what you said is try to do the right thing and do the right thing. And eventually the ratings will catch up with you and recognize what you're doing.
2: Yeah, that's uh, it's probably not the best answer, but yes, that's it's the best that I've got right now.
1: Well, on behalf of the Smeal College of Business here at Penn State University, the Department of Supply Chain Information Systems and the Center for Supply Chain Research, both Herb Grossman and I want to thank our guest today, Ms. Sophia Schuster, MBA and master's degree from here in supply chain management, for talking to us about environmental social governance, the landscape, mandatory and voluntary reporting, the ratings agencies, with a little bit of advice for all our professionals on how they can think about the environment. Uh, not the environment, literally, but the environmental ESG. And uh, hopefully we get her back here in a couple of years so she can talk about how it's changed. And uh, sounds like there's a lot of room for improvement. Again, thanks, Sophia, for joining us today.
2: Oh, Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash cscr.